You have a model for how things work. Everyone does. You approach each day with an expectation, a supposition that A plus B equals C. It's not written down anywhere. There is no textbook. They're just rules to living. And the earlier you learn them, the better off you are. Rules, structure, consequence. And yet, well, what happens when all of that goes out of the window? When everything you thought before, well, too bad. The deck's been reshuffled. What do you do? What do you do? Today, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present Over the Line. Stories about people who had every reason to expect one thing, but got something else entirely. My name is Glenn Washington, and you're listening to Snap Judgment. Now, go on ahead, tell everyone to give you some space so you can listen properly, because we're going to start today's episode with the type of story that changes people. It's told to us by Donald Cabana, a career prison officer who at one point worked as the warden of Mississippi's Parchment Prison, which had a reputation as one of the nation's toughest penal institutions. Donald's story takes place on death row, and as such, sensitive listeners should be advised. Because at Parchment Prison, one of Donald's many tasks was to oversee executions. The method at that time was the gas chamber. I knew that at some point in my career, I would probably be faced with that task of executing somebody. Any person who takes on a warden's job, they better do it with their eyes wide open. You go into it understanding that this may be part of my job. And if I'm not willing to do this particular part of my job, then I shouldn't take the job in the first place. Edward Earl Johnson was the first execution that I actually presided over. He was an interesting guy. He had been convicted of uh, killing a town marshal about uh, three months after he graduated from high school. He came from a, a good family, had been raised in the church and stuff, and uh, shortly before the execution, the weekend before, we were having Sunday dinner. And um, my wife, she looked at me and she said, are you ready for this? I almost flippantly, nonchalantly said, hell, I've spent 20 years in my career being ready for this moment. You know, combat in Vietnam. And she said, I think you're going to find that those are two very different experiences. I said, well, maybe so. But look, it goes with the territory. And if I'm not willing to do it, I don't deserve the job and I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. Most inmates, you know, on death row are going to tell you they're innocent. But usually, when you get right down to it's time to do the deed, the inmate will come around. He may not just come right out and say, okay, I did it. They might say, uh, please apologize to the victim's family. Or, you know, you're not going to do that if you didn't do something. But in his case, at the point in time that I finished reading the death warrant, when it was time to ask him if he had any final words, he is strapped into the chair inside the gas chamber. I leaned down and I just kind of whispered to him and said, Edward, it's not important that anybody in this room hears you say, I'm guilty, I did it. But what is important is that you're at peace with your God before I have to give the order to do this. And um, I thought to myself at that moment, hey, that's pretty strong stuff, that's pretty good stuff, and that'll get his attention. He looked at me and said, Warden, I'm at peace with my God. How are you going to be with yours when you realize that I'm being murdered? I'm innocent. And those were his last words, I'm innocent. I told my wife, she met me outside, she said, how was it? I said, it was horrendous. It takes too long. It's potentially excruciatingly painful. 
we're supposed to be better than they are. I said, uh, if I never have to do it again, I won't be sorry. One's enough for me. I don't know how folks in Texas do it. And uh, we started walking back to the house. And I said, you know, while I was doing this, everybody else in Mississippi is asleep. And I've been busy doing their dirty work for them. We got to the house. I climbed in the shower. And I scrubbed and I scrubbed and I scrubbed because I felt dirty. Well... Six weeks later, it got worse because I, I did my second execution. Only in this case, the, the guy never denied his guilt. Connie Ray Evans. The problem was that I had become extremely close to him. That happens sometimes. It's inexplicable. It breaks every rule that wardens have about don't get close to the cons. And my wife used to warn me, that guy's going to burn you. And I said, look, out of all the inmates on death row, Connie's the best behaved, never causes any problems. He's as quiet as a church. She said, I'm not talking about him escaping or hurting anybody. He's going to burn you. He sends you birthday cards. You go down there and you play checkers with him. He's gotten under your skin. You're, you're much too close to him for your own good. What's going to happen if his time comes while you're the warden and lo and behold two weeks later the governor called and said we're going to have another execution in 30 days and I said um, okay who is it and they said let's see a guy by the name of Connie Ray Evans and I was just stunned I had uh, instituted very liberal visitation policies for prisoners facing execution. His mother, when I had to tell her it was time for the visit to be over, I went outside the building to smoke a cigarette. And she came outside and she came up to me and she put her hand on my arm and she said, I know you have children. Please don't kill my child. Those words rang in my ears. I went back to my house that evening and I just wanted to hug my kids and not let them go. The night of the execution, when it was time to, to walk the mile, we started walking him down the row, and the inmates, as we passed their cells, one by one, started saying goodbye to him. The officers who worked on the row had all gathered up at the end of the block, and they were all standing here with these big burly guys, you know, with tears in their eyes. And about halfway down the row, Somebody, one of the inmates, started very softly singing Amazing Grace. And by the time we got to the end of the road to go into the last night room next to the chamber, uh, the entire cell block was singing. You know, it was the, the 30 minutes or so in, in the last night room was really awkward. I found myself saying really awkward things to him like, uh, we're going to go through this together. I'm going to be with you every step of the way. Knowing it, well, not exactly every step of the way because I'm not strapping my butt into that chair. We talked about mundane things. And I thought it doesn't get much harder than this. But we got him into the gas chamber and, and we were strapping him into the chair and I read the death warrant and when I asked him if he had anything to say he said I want to tell you something privately I just want you to know that I love you to be honest with you I think for an instant I wanted to tear up but hell I'm the warden and I've got a team of employees that are expecting me to be a leader and uh, you don't do that if you're out there boohooing about executing somebody that murdered another human being, no matter how much you might have liked him personally. I stepped out. When we were closing the chamber door, he said, wait a minute, Warden, I have one more question. And I stepped back in, and he said, uh, how do I do this? And I said, look, you're going to be able to see me uh, through the glass. And when the gas begins to rise up 
you look at me and I'll nod my head and you take a couple of deep breaths and I promise you it's going to be over very quickly, which of course was not true. But I never took my eyes off him. We were fixated on each other and I just looked at him and shook my head. I realized uh, about a minute and a half into it, I looked at the doctor and I, and I said, Jesus, he's holding his breath. Of course, he couldn't hear me through the glass, but I said, breathe, damn it, breathe. And he was still holding his breath about two and a half minutes into it, and I banged my fist on the glass and said, breathe. It took about four and a half minutes before he lapsed into unconsciousness. I found myself standing there wondering how we both got there. How had our lives come together under those circumstances? I went home and I told my wife, okay, you were right. I shouldn't have got close to him. And um, I told her what he said. Now she began to cry a little bit and she said, but you're wrong about something. And I said, what? She said, you will come to treasure the fact that you knew him the way you did. And you'll treasure for the rest of your life what he said to you. I do. Um, I do. We're having Sunday dinner. And uh, my oldest daughter all of a sudden just said, do you worry about being forgiven? I did struggle very privately with the issue of my judgment. Last year, I, I went into congestive heart failure, and it caused my kidneys to fail, and, and it got real complicated and touchy for a while. I remember laying there uh, praying the rosary and thinking to myself, um, I want to make sure I've covered as many of the bases as possible in terms of seeking forgiveness and redemption. And so the executions were part of my conversation with, with my God. You know, one of the great criticisms that a lot of people have about uh, death row inmates is that, well, of course they've found religion. They all find God when they are told they're going to be executed. But I remember, you know, my priest was standing there with me, and I'm hanging on to my rosary, and I'm praying. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, we're not different from some inmate on death row. I want to thank Donald Cabana for sharing his story with Snap Judgment. It was not easy, and we appreciate it. Big thanks as well to our own amazing Anna Sussman for bringing us the story. Now, I'm thrilled to introduce you to this next storyteller for several reasons. One, because he's fantastic. But two, I do believe he is the youngest person we've ever had grab the snap microphone in our short history, 15 years old. Come correct, Noah. And you're going to hear, nothing goes over the line like family. Noah St. John, break it down. When my mamas fight, they go on long car rides, come back, and I hear our car stay still. They come in and Robin goes directly to the bedroom, angry. Maria will sometimes make toast, pour water. I sit in my room quiet, listening like a radio antenna. My mamas drive a CRV. They bought it brand new. The car is big boned practical. It is our car. I have been one with this CRV for so long now. We used to drive for miles out on the highway until I fell asleep. It has taken me to martial arts classes and school plays. This car took me to my first poetry slam, to my first performance. This car drove me to the gay pride parade where I skipped through the crowd throwing mini Oreos. This is the car I'll learn to drive in, the car I'll remember. Last Tuesday night, 
My mother Maria comes into the house with a weathered smile. My other mother, Robin, and I are sitting in the room. Maria asks us if we'll take a drive with her. So, we all get in the CRV, our hearts thudding in offbeat unison. And as we drive, silence settles in like melting plastic, and I wonder, and then I know, this is it. And I didn't imagine it would end like this. I didn't imagine an ending at all, but if they were going to tell me about the divorce, what a way to do it. I sit in the back seat. I wonder when they'll say it, how they'll say it. I think about how my time will be split between them. I wonder what'll happen when they see each other afterwards. Will it feel like collisions? I don't want to meet a new girlfriend. I can't imagine anything but this. Its ending is unthinkable. My heart hurts at the thought of the last miles. These miles. Who will take the CRV? In the back seat, I think about how lucky we were to have had this family. Their 20 years of marriage, my 15 with them. I remember when Maria drove away one night without saying where. When Robin packed up her things one day and Maria ran outside to stop her from leaving, I remember when Maria whispers at Robin to be quiet and Robin yells louder. I remember when I came to them crying at the idea of separation. I remember when Robin came out sobbing. I feel these walls crumbling. I don't want this life to end. Maria starts to talk. I pinch my leg and look out the window. She tells me that our car, our CRV, is just 13 miles away from reaching 100,000 miles now. I wonder if this is part of the divorce speech or just a distraction. I feel angry. They should just say it. She tells me the reason we took this ride is so that we could all be there to reach 100,000 miles together as the people who matter in her life. Slowly. I come to the realization that this isn't a breakup ride. This is a stay-together ride. We're in the car, and we're driving on a Tuesday night, and we're 99,997 miles in. We stop for onion rings and Sundays. Keep driving 99,993 miles. Stevie Nicks, 99,997 miles. Elton John, when we get to 99,999 miles, we hold hands, blast Melissa Etheridge, and sing Lucky at the top of our lungs. There are too many reasons that my mamas found love in each other's presence. There are too many moments when we are unbreakable, and in this moment, we are one family constructing road as we go, burning bridges behind us, adding mileage like graceful aging, driving in our CRV towards moonlight. Only a sophomore in high school, Noah St. John is an acclaimed Youth Speaks Grand Slam Poetry Champion. He's making a name for himself as a writer, an actor, and performer. That piece was produced by Jamie DeWolf and Renzo Gorio. Now, if you want to find out more about Noah St. John, check out our site, snapjudgment.org. We'll have a link to some amazing pieces that he's done. You're listening to our Snap Judgment Over the Line episode. And coming up next, stories that are going to make you think, stories that are going to make you feel, and stories you're going to remember for a very, very long time. We'll be right back after the break. Do not miss a minute. Snap Judgment.
Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the over the line episode. Today we're featuring stories about people navigating situations when the rules by which they live their lives lose relevance. And our next story is about survival in more ways than one. Audio for this story was taken from the amazing documentary, Living for 32. Listener discretion is advised. The story was produced by our own Stephanie Fu. It was a snowy April morning, and Colin Goddard was just another sleepy student who dragged himself out of bed. My name is Colin Goddard. I'm 23. I became an international studies major. Here's his friend, Christina Anderson. So Colin picked me up that morning. He drove me to school. We had considered skipping class to get breakfast because, I mean, it was a 9 a.m., I believe, 9.30 French class. And so it was, you know, it was kind of like we would skip and whatever. But that day, they chose to do the responsible thing. I was in the right place at the right time. I was in class. And that's when my whole life changed. We started first hearing loud banging noises coming outside of our classroom. Uh, The teacher went to the door to look into the hallway to see what was going on and making all that noise. And as soon as she opened it, she shut it back again and said, everyone get underneath your desk and somebody call 911. I pulled out my phone and dialed 911. And I said that we were in Norris Hall. I think there's a shooting going on. And as soon as I basically got that out, we saw bullets coming through our door. Everyone jumped underneath their desk and went to the floor. I came full circle with the situation when I was shot the first time in my left knee. Sure enough, you feel that sensation of huge push and a sharp sting, and you feel the blood kind of trickle down your leg, and you feel it kind of warm on your body. And then the bangs just got much louder again. You could tell he was back in our room. This time, he more methodically came down each of the rows and was still firing. At one point, he was standing at my feet and that's when I was shot a second time in my left hip. He shot me the third time in my right shoulder and then it flipped my whole body around and I exposed my right side and I was shot for a fourth time in my right hip. Colin's friend Christina was also injured. I was shot twice in the back and once in my toe. And he shot me in the back, so eventually I just I couldn't move. I remember feeling very cold. It seems that I only remember a couple more gunshots after that and then everything got quiet. As soon as the police came into the room, they said, shoot her down. And that's when I was like, shoot her down. What? I didn't know that he had committed suicide in the front of our classroom. Soon after that, the police and the medic staff came in and began their triage of all the students laying on the floor. And I remember hearing them walk up to people, say, this person's yellow, this person's red. And then I heard black tag, black tag, black tag. And that's when I realized that there were other students in here who didn't make it. That year, that was the last day it snowed in Blacksburg. So I remember they laid me on the grass, they cut my shirt off, they cut my jeans off, and um, I was laying there in my underwear, freezing. They hopped an ambulance over the curb and drove right up to me and put me in it, and uh, that's when I started my trip to the hospital. I was one of seven students to survive out of a class of 17. Uh, My teacher was killed. I don't know why. I know that there were people who were killed all around me that did nothing different than I did, and um, I just got lucky. The shooter's name was Cho Seung Hui. He was a 23-year-old undergraduate student at Virginia Tech who had suffered from anxiety and depression. I mean, when it learned it was Cho, when I learned like his history, like it's like it made sense. It's like it's like how could nobody have gotten to this guy beforehand? Like how could no one have you know realized what was going on before he had to go out like this? Twenty-five students were injured that day, and 32 were killed. It probably wasn't really to the third day that I was getting coherent about what was happening. And I think by that point, they had figured out what the numbers were. I mean, I knew it was going to be a lot, you know, just because how many times I heard that gunfire, like, it was just constant. But it didn't really hit me until that memorial was built. When at that first anniversary, when you had one person stand in front of it for each one, you see all those 32 people line up like that. Like, it's a lot of people. It's a lot of people when you see them all standing like that. For two months, Colin went to physical therapy every single day. Every day. I remember they put me on a bike, and I couldn't make a full rotation on a bike pedal. But he needed to heal more than his body. Here's Colin's mother. I did an interview during those early days. I said, um, I didn't want this to be the defining moment of your life. I didn't want him to be the kid who got shot at Virginia Tech. There's ways that I've seen that people kind of react to something like this, internalize it, turn it around, and put it towards their future to kind of make something come out of that. And that's a survivor's mission. A judge had declared that Cho was mentally ill, 
so he should not have been allowed to buy a gun. But Cho still managed to buy three pistols. How you doing, sir? Where we can see your Mahdi Egyptian? I'm looking at that thing. This is from hidden camera footage at a gun show. Colin asks to see a Mahdi Egyptian AK-47 assault rifle. You want 660 for it? The man behind the counter says that all he needs from Colin is a driver's license. Colin says he doesn't have his on him. But in the video, the seller just shrugs and lets Colin buy the rifle anyway. Colin has dozens of videos just like this one with multiple sellers. He even has a shot of his trunk filled with guns from a show. You've been to one gun show, you've been to all gun shows. It's pretty much the same. You pay your, I think it was eight bucks entry fee. Uh, You start walking around looking at stuff. Every once in a while, you'll see a guy that's got, you know, just a couple of guns on the table, doesn't really look that official. You know, you go up to him, you start talking to him, and you ask him, you know, what do you got to do to buy this gun that he's got? And he says, sometimes all you need is a license, and sometimes you don't even need that. Because of what he experienced, Colin doesn't want guns getting into the wrong hands ever again. So he shows these videos to congressmen and activists, trying to enforce regulations within gun shows to prevent illegal gun sales. I didn't think that changing some laws in Washington was going to happen by me telling my story. I thought it was going to be me getting the data, me showing all this other stuff, but it's in fact not like that. In fact, I will be able to move the ball forward a good bit with my story. If you're interested in hearing more about Colin's story, please, please check out the fantastic documentary, Living for 32. We'll have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. And our sincere thanks and appreciation to the families affected by the Virginia Tech tragedy. Today on Snap Judgment, we've been exploring what can break you. Ted Wired was an exuberant young tennis pro with a bright future until he came up against a trial that no one is prepared to meet. I went off to college where my high school sweetheart, Leslie, was going to school, and we got married. She was pregnant with our first daughter, Carrie, and soon after that, she was pregnant with Amy. So we were excited once again. My younger brother, he was supposed to be the godfather of Amy, and he died in a shipwreck up in Alaska. We were really shattered. Then Amy was born, and we found out that Leslie had sarcomatoid renal cell carcinoma. Our world was rapidly changing. We found out on a Friday and on Monday, Leslie was in to have her kidney removed and to have a tumor removed from her skull. You were both 28 at the time? Yeah. I was scared. It looked like my wife was going to die. I had a one and a three-year-old. I remember taking her to the hospital, coming back to put the girls to bed and actually dressing them in their school clothes and asking them not to pee the bed because I knew I couldn't do it all in the morning. And they didn't pee the bed. And so they thought Leslie would live for seven weeks. And she walked with that cancer. And she died almost exactly two years later. After the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I had started to wonder, God, there should be a camp for kids when parents are sick. And there should be a camp for dads who are trying to raise girls alone. Finally, the three of us were starting to get life going, and I got a phone call from my stepfather. And he said, Ted, this is not a joke. I'm being totally serious. There's been a horrible car accident, and Amy has died. And my mother-in-law, Leslie's mom, had died. And they're flying Carrie as soon as she gets out of surgery to Albuquerque. I was just stunned. My soul was totally shattered from my body. And I drove to the hospital. I was actually driving to the same exact hospital where Leslie had had her surgeries. And the whole way, I just kept going, I can't do this again, I can't do this. Carrie lived for one day. And at one moment, I just went in and said, Carrie, if you need to be with your mom and your sissy, that's okay. 20 minutes later, her brain hemorrhaged and she was gone. There was over 2,000 people at the funeral. It was amazing, and that really felt 100% supported. I did believe I'd be okay. I didn't know what that would mean in the upcoming year and how not okay that was. My soul was definitely not in my body. I was just in that hollow place. 
From there I traveled and I ended up in Maui and that is when I dropped. And it really became, I could swim out into the ocean and the current could take me away and I could be with my family. And this voice said I could not kill myself in honor of my girls. I was bummed. I had really thought maybe I could just stay here and be the walking dead and be a zombie. So I came back to the mainland and stumbled around. Finally, I stepped into a treatment center in North Carolina. And it was a treatment center for drug and alcohol uh -huh. addiction? It was for drug and alcohol addiction. But there was nowhere else to go? I mean, there was... No, there was nowhere. Why isn't there a place you can just show up and say, I'm sad, I've lost self. So I knocked on the door and said, I need to come to treatment. And they said, well, how many drugs do you use? And I said, none. And they said, how much do you drink? And I said, probably four beers. And they said, a day. I said, no, a year. And they're like, oh, this guy minimizes well. We might as well let him in. And they learned quickly that I really didn't have that type of addiction. I had lost my drug of choice called my daughters. And there was no dealer. I knew craving on the utmost level. And I was more than willing to die to get one more hit of my daughters. And so I spent 28 days in treatment. Was there a moment when you felt yourself come back to yourself? I really felt myself about day 24 in treatment. I had stepped out to go for a little walk and saw a kingfisher bird. And all of a sudden from that bird, I noticed the little lake. And I noticed the temperature on my skin. And I noticed the dirt under my feet. And all of a sudden, somehow I was regrounded to this earth. And it was like my soul had decided, yep, I can re-enter this shell again. All of a sudden, oh, it was an incredible moment. Finally dropping into that place of I surrender and I'm sad actually opened my heart and it let me live again. I met my present wife, Marcella, and uh, one day she just said, are you ever going to do that dream of that camp or whatever? In honor of the girls, we decided to sell everything and head west to start an emotional sanctuary focused on grief and loss and recovery. We found this broken down house that we rebuilt and made guest rooms and then people started showing up who were sad. I think that a grief center should be in every town. I believe that very deeply. I definitely see people in the world who stay the walking dead and stay in that shell place that I was so long. Grief recovery is that piece of us that we've lost, and so we need recovery. It's a natural, normal healing process. So I die in a loss, and then the grief process is me rebirthing myself into my new self because I don't get to be who I used to be. When you couldn't have gotten here without those losses in your life, right? You want to talk about that? Yeah, it's an awesome question. Due to the losses in my life, I get to do the work I do. But yes, it's very sad. It's a sad story. And I'm also grateful that I chose to live. So I strived in honor of them. So they live on through me. I love life. And my story would say the opposite. I get the great honor to witness people to choose to live again and celebrate life when they didn't feel there would ever be life again. And I can't ask for a better gift than that. And the beautiful thing is it happens. Do you want me to show you how the setup is? Sure. And Meredith's been here for two weeks. Yeah. Right? And there's our drummer. We're here to celebrate new beginnings. Do we need to burn it? Sure. Let it go, Meredith. Leave it in the desert. <laughs> Don't put it back in the backpack. One, two, three. Chrysalis gone, wings are soaring. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Thank you. These days, Ted's both a minister and a counselor, and is very busy advocating for you and running the Golden Willow Retreat Center. We'll have a link to his new book, Witnessing Ted, on our site, snapjudgment.org. 
That piece was produced by our own Rita Daniels. You're listening to Snap Judgment, the -the over-the-line episode, and when we return, stories to make you rethink just about everything. After the break, Snap Judgment. back to Snap Judgment from NPR and PRX, the Over the Line episode. Today we're featuring stories about people who have the scaffolding of their lives ripped away, and the life you recreate is never the same as the one you lost. I'm not going to give much about this next story away. You've probably heard about Shoshana Johnson, but this time, she's the one telling her own story. They told me I had to lose like 70 pounds, and I was like, oh, no, no, that's not going to happen. And the Army said, drop 20 and we'll take you. I said, okay. I chose to be a cook, and there was a shortage of cooks. I knew I would get that experience from my culinary school, but also as a cook, you got bonus college money. Going into combat was not something at the forethought in my mind. You always know that war is possible, but also as a cook, it's never entered my mind that um, I'd be, like, really on the front lines of anything. I deployed in t- February 2003. I have to admit, the first thought is I'm not going. I had a two-year-old daughter, and I really thought about getting out of it. But when it came down to it, the orders came, and I said, you know what, I volunteered for the military Nobody forced me, so when it's time to do my job, I'm going to go out and do my job. I thought I'd really just go out for six months, get extra combat pay, lose some weight, and that's about it. All I knew is that we were on our way to Baghdad. That's it. We had been driving through the night. We were very tired. We passed some Marines on the road, which was weird. You know, Army never goes before the Marines. I had a bad feeling. Something wasn't right. I heard shots fired. It sounded more like just rocks hitting a windshield. That's when you're like, oh my goodness, we're being fired upon. We were run off the road. We were taking fire from a lot of directions. We had gone underneath our truck to return fire, and it wasn't long that I hit the ground, and then I felt the burning in my legs. It was a gunshot. Adrenaline was kicked in, and I don't remember any pain after that because I was wondering if I was going to live. I said the Lord's Prayer and um, tried to make peace with my maker. I was dragged from underneath the vehicle by my legs, which is when I really started to feel the pain. It was just a crowd of people that crowded around me and just beat me. Eleven soldiers died that day. We were captured, it's like um, stone walls, and then it was a metal door, and it had like a peephole they could open up and look inside. There were days that we got bombed by the U.S. where it hit pretty close, and I was like, oh my goodness, I'm gonna die, and my own side's gonna be the one that kills me. The isolation was the very hardest part. 
um, when you're sitting in a cell, um, you don't know if you're going to live or die, and you're completely alone. It went back and forth through my whole 22 days of days where I were like, okay, Lord, if you're going to take me, just make it go quick. It was a wonderful Sunday morning. The Marines are the ones that broke down the door, just like in the movies. I could hear that clear English of get down, get down. And I was like, oh, my goodness, we're going home. Seven Americans held prisoner of war in Iraq for nearly three weeks are on their way home. They boarded a military transport. The seven soldiers smiled and waved to a crowd of well-wishers. Shoshana Johnson, the only woman among the seven, was... Our whole nation has also shared in the happiness of learning that seven American prisoners of war were rescued in northern Iraq earlier this week and are now safe. When we got off the plane, we really noticed it was like 3,000 people out there. I didn't... It never occurred to me that all those people would come out to welcome us home. They were cheering, a lot of flag waving and, and things like that. It was a wonderful um, reception. Coming home is wonderful, but it's not easy. There's a lot of guilt associated with um, coming home when you know your friends didn't come home the way they should have. Um, I didn't sleep. I um, had nightmares. You know, you have serious flashbacks and you realize that 30 minutes has passed by and you didn't, wasn't aware of it. You know, there's lots of days where I wish I was normal, that I didn't have to take so much medication in the morning and at night. When we came home, we got a lot of invitations, really cool things that we got to do. Uh, we went to Country Music Awards. I got to do Leno. Looking back, I realized that I did some of those things in order to get away from being on post. I was just running. But some of the fellow soldiers got upset because of what we were getting when we got home. Some of them just plain out came and said it. You know, why do you get to go and do this? I was in the war too. And I was like, okay. And I remember this one clearly. It was a sergeant. And I was like, well, sergeant, did you get shot? Did you get captured? Did you get beaten up? And then he was like, well, no. And I was like, okay then. You want to go back and change places? You can have it all. You can have it all. I would join the army all over again. I don't regret raising my right hand and joining the military. If I could undo my time as a POW, of course I would. Thanks to Shoshana Johnson, and thank you, Anna Sussman, for production. Now, you might know our next guest. She's been on the show several times, Joyce Lee. I asked her, I said, Joyce, go way, way back. Go way back and tell me a story of the first time you remember going over the line. I remember when I first tried my hand at rebelling. I was in the fourth grade and my teacher's name was Miss Bettis. I did not like Miss Bettis. She didn't mind making me sweat through a math problem in front of the entire class without helping me out one bit. She also didn't mind reminding me in front of the class that my talking during her lectures was the reason why I didn't know anything. I was in the middle of a deep conversation about my love for my rainbow bright doll with Judy, who sat next to me, when Miss Bettis slammed her ruler against my desk. Joyce Lee, since you know so much that you have extra time to carry on side conversations, come up here and complete this fraction. The kids were all like, ooh, hush. Come on, Joyce. We are all waiting on you. Listen, I knew I didn't know the answer. And Miss Bettis knew that I didn't know the answer and I was not going to go up there and show everybody how ignorant I was. So I decided to totally rebel. No. Excuse me? No. 
I ain't answering this stupid question. Because you don't know the answer. No, because your mama don't know the answer. Why don't you hand her the chalk? I regretted the words as soon as they came out of my mouth. Miss Bettis gave me a referral to the principal's office and he just stared at me in shock when she told him what I said. Joyce, I know you were raised better than this. Sir, I'm sorry. Oh, no, you're not. But you will be when your mother hears about this. That woman working two jobs, going to school, feeding half the block. But I ain't gonna tell your mama. My heart dropped in relief. You're not? He shook his head stern. Oh, no, I ain't gonna bring that woman no bad news. You are. I looked at him like he slapped me. Hey. You talk to Miss Bettis like she had a tail and you was her owner. This will teach you to stay in a child's place. And I want a note given to Miss Bettis from your mother as evidence that you told her the truth by tomorrow. You can go now. The world collapsed, and the rest of the school day just evaporated. Before I knew it, the last class bell rang and it was time for me to go home. Boy, I did my chores extra good that day. I swept the kitchen three times, damp mopped the floor, and even cleaned the refrigerator before my mother got home. She thanked me for doing such a good job of cleaning, and all I wanted to do was scream, I acted a plum fool at school today, please don't kill me. But I didn't. My mama made dinner and I didn't say anything. We went to church, I didn't tell her there either. We came home and I just kept staring at my mother. My mother noticed me staring. Hey, Fussbox, come here. I sat in her lap and she kissed my forehead. What you thinking about, love? This was the time to tell her. I knew it was. It just was. Um, Mama? You see the refrigerator? I cleaned it. <laughs> yeah, I saw it. That looks good. She grinned and kissed me again. I took a bath and went to bed... Around six o'clock that next morning, I woke up to the sight of my mother standing over me. Joyce, you know I got a call from your teacher yesterday while I was at work. She told me what you did. I felt like I was still asleep and had just entered a nightmare. My mother sat on my bed next to me. Her demeanor hadn't changed, though. She was calm, almost pleasant even, so I didn't panic. I'm not going to whoop you. I know how you are, so I ain't surprised at what you did. I am surprised that you didn't tell me when you were supposed to. Why didn't you tell me? Well, Mama, I thought you would kill me. My mother laughed hysterically and handed me the note in an envelope. Give this to Miss Bettis, apologize, and we'll talk about this later on today. I felt the boulder lift off of my shoulders and had a smile as wide as the sun when I handed Miss Bettis the letter. There you go. Here's your letter. <laughs> I skipped on back down in my seat. Miss Bettis opened the letter and read it briefly. Joyce, would you please come here? I walked towards Miss Bettis with a strut feeling feather light without a care in the world and smack. She smacked me again and again and again in front of the entire class until I cried. When I finally wrestled free, sobbing, she handed me the note. It read, Thank you for the phone call. If Joyce does not apologize before you read this letter, please give her the spanking she deserves and let her read this. Dear Joyce, you represent me, your grandmother, your great-grandmother, and a line back past slavery. You will respect your elders as long as you are my child and black. You will maintain your good name or you will pay a terrible price. I promise. And your mother always keeps her promises. Sincerely, Mama. Big thanks to Joyce Lee. Now, what you might not know about Joyce is that she just put out a brand new album, and we at Snap Judgment are so proud. We'll have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. And big thanks to her mama. That was really her mama at the end of that piece. And to Stephanie Fu, Pat, and C.D. Miller. 
and Jamie DeWolf who produced it. Remember, to keep the snap alive, hit us up on the Facebook or the Twitter. Tweet, tweet. Snap Judgment was produced by myself and the hardest working team in rock and roll. Please give it up for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Anna, locked down, handcuffs, lights out, Sussman, Stephanie the grappler fool, the Snap Judgment chaplain, Jamie DeWolf. Rita Daniels can't be bought. Will Urbina can be bought. The Beat Masters of Boppin' Bay, Pat Masidi-Miller and Renzo Gorio. Now, have you ever seen a spanking brand new, elaborately polished, gleaming Maserati shining in the noonday sun? <laughs> Not if you're with the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, you have it. Better get in an old Ford or maybe a Corolla or something like that. But many thanks to the CPB. So, you take your cheese over here and your grits over there. Put them together and what do you get? Cheese grits? <laughs> no. It's PRX, the public radio exchange. Putting the public in public media, prx.org. Youth Speaks, because the next generation can speak for itself, youthspeaks.org. And even though this is not the news, in fact, you could find yourself backed up against a wall with danger coming in from every side, uncertain of where to turn, and right when the villain describes his evil plan, you tell him to look out! and then sneak away when his head's turned. Yes, you could do all of that and still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.